This is our seventh study in the book of Galatians. This is an in-depth study. The title, or at least the topic, is Escaping the Curse. And I would like us to look at an overview of curses in the Bible, because usually there's a couple of questions about that that I would like to go ahead and address. We have moved from the autobiographical, autobiography, we've moved from Paul talking about himself for the first couple of chapters into the theological section in the second part, and he's going to get into the practical part at the end of Galatians, and that's always the part that I look forward to, although I really love studying those first two chapters this time, and I love the section that we're in today, but that section on practical Christian living is so incredible how to not only be saved by by faith through the spirit but how to walk in the spirit and how to finish in the spirit and these three things are all very very important we will in this book with that practical uh section uh let's take a look first of all at the passage it's short enough let's read it and then i want to take some time to look at curses in the Bible, and then we want to take time to break this down and talk about why the law is a curse. Paul's going to make that statement here. The law is a curse. You know, and, and I tell you what amazes me. We are getting a ton of pushback on these studies in the book of Galatians. There are a lot of people out there who believe that you are supposed to live by the law. There are people that will say you are saved by faith, but you live by the law. And they don't like so far where we've gone with this study. And someone made a statement here a while ago, they left a comment uh, that was, Paul is saying the exact opposite of what you're saying. And I'm like, I don't know what book of Galatians you're reading, but it's not the same one that we're reading and studying. If you think that Paul is saying that we are supposed to live by the law, because he keeps making his point that we are not supposed to. So let's pick it up in verse 10 as Paul continues in on the theological section of the book of Galatians, making the point that we are not saved by the law and we're not to live by the law. So he says in verse 10, for as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not faith, but the man who does, not, does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree." that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That, of course, is Galatians 3.10 through 14. Now, let's talk a little bit about curses in the Bible. So, the biblical term for curse is not the same as a witch casting a curse on someone. The biblical idea for curse is that you are, you're, you're living under a certain something that is causing bad things to happen to you. For example, if you sin and you have consequences that come from that sin, the word for curse in the Bible is the word that is used there for your consequences. 
So if you sin, there's consequences. That sin has placed you under a curse. That's the idea. It is the opposite of blessing in the Bible, that if we live our lives the way that God wants us to live our lives, if we will avoid sin, we will not be under the consequences or curse of sin, but we will be under the blessings of God. So it is always better to fight temptation, to not give in to sin, because you will be living under the blessings rather than under the consequences or under the curse. And we see this clearly in Genesis chapter 3, where you have Adam eating of the apple given to him by Eve, tempted by the serpent. And God gives them curses. He says to Satan that he would be destroyed by the seed of the woman. He also says, on your belly you shall go, and you will eat dust the days of your life. From dust you've come until dust you will return. And then he says, and your seed, and I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And then he says, and he will crush your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Now, the question there is, who is the seed of the serpent? And there's been some strange teaching about that. There's been the teaching of the serpent seed in the message. That's William Branham, who taught that Eve had sex with the serpent, and that was the sin. But if you try to carry that forward, if you try to take that forward and read the rest of the passage, it becomes evident that it can't fit into the context because the tree becomes meaning something different. The fruit means something different than sex. Just read it in context and read it through, and it just, you begin to see that it doesn't say that at all. I remember the first time that I was ever exposed to that teaching, a fairly young pastor, probably still in my 20s. A gentleman in the church had invited me to go fishing. Uh, we went down to Bog Hole. I don't know if you guys know where that's at, down in the San Rafael Valley. And um, we fished for crappie. We caught a slew of them. But I remember casting with it. And he said to me, and I'd heard this teaching before, by the way, I said the first time I heard it, but the first time I ever talked to anybody in detail about it. And I was casting. He says, have you ever thought that maybe Eve had sex with the serpent in the garden? And I'm like, Oh, I wish I wasn't here right now. <laughs> I wish I was anybody. And you got all day long, right? All day long to be there. So uh, literally, we had the discussion about it all day long. And I went home, tore the passage apart and looked at it. That, that it cannot, it cannot be the case. Just look at it in context. Look at the continuation of fruit and look at the way that it's used. And you would have to carry that on through the Bible to be able to do it. William Bradham had other problems as well. <clears throat> so the seed there, your seed, um, I'm going to put in between between your seed and her seed, the seed of the serpent, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. So they're the ones that Satan influenced in the future. That's the seed. And they were the ones who the religious leaders who turned Jesus over to the Romans and Jesus ended up crushing Satan and the work of Satan, which would crush the descendants. So that was his curse, the, the um, results of his sin. Eve's curse was that she would have pain in childbearing. I think you gals ought to gang up on Eve when you get up into heaven, by the way. But then there's this other statement, which I'm not going to get way into tonight, just because I want you guys to still like me at the end of this Bible study but that your desire will be for your husband, 
but he shall rule over you. And there's a few different ideas as to what that means. We won't get into that now. We'll get into it at another point. But it does mean that there will be conflict in marriage. That part of the curse is that there is conflict in marriage. So when there's conflict in your marriage, and I realize some of you guys here never have conflict. But when there is, we can trace it all the way to back there. And the conflict often is, you know, it's kind of a power dynamic. That kind of seems to be what the statement is. I think that's probably the closest there to what it means. And Adam's curse is that the ground is cursed. Some try to point out that the curse is not Adam, Eve, or the serpent, but that it's around them. But uh, I, I think the, the curse represents on Adam. The, uh, the ground will give up its fruit with difficulty, that thorns and thistles will come out of the ground, and that you and I have to work to make ends meet. And that's why work is difficult because of Adam. Now, the world hasn't been set free from that yet. We've been redeemed. But the, the world is waiting for our redemption, the Bible says. The, the whole world will one day be restored to what it was like before the curse, the result of what happened there. Now, the next time that you find anything that resembles curses in the Bible is what is called generational curses. And I wanted to bring this up because, again, this is something I get a lot of questions about. Are there generational curses? And there are three passages in the Old Testament. I'm going to read one of them, but they all say something like this. I'm going to read the most comprehensive one. I've got all three in my notes. So it's Deuteronomy 5, 8 and 9. You need to jump ahead a little bit. And here's what it says. Um, you shall not make for yourself any carved image. So it was a statement against idolatry. Any likeness of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I am the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Let me read you, let me read you another one, one more. Exodus 20, four through six. So the part that it's important is, I am a jealous God visiting the sins of a father upon their children to the third and fourth generation. That's what's called the generational curse, okay? And by those who believe in it. I don't think there is a generational curse. I'll, I'll explain what I, I think in a moment. But let me read you this other one because it gives another section. It gives another thought. Um, this is Exodus 20, four through six. says basically the same thing. You shall not make for yourself carved images, any likeness or anything uh, in, that is in heaven or that is on the earth beneath and that is in the water under it. You shall not bow down, nor shall you serve them, for I am the Lord your God, a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations, to those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's quite a contrast. Visiting the sins of the father to the third and the fourth generation, but showing my kindness to thousands for those who serve me. So I think that what is being said here is not that a father sins and then the children under, under a curse. And you'll get this when you visit a church and they will tell you, they'll read one of those passages and they'll say, that's why you can't fight off alcohol or that's why you can't get rid of pornography or that's why you've got this problem in your life because you're under a generational curse and I want to pray for you. I want to set you free from that curse. And so he calls people up and they'll lay hands on them and pray for them that they could be delivered from the curse. 
I've been in several services where someone has prayed to break generational curses. Interesting thing is, that's never done. Never done in the book of Acts. Never talked about in any of the epistles. So what it's saying there, I believe, is that there are, there are consequences to our sin. And one of the consequences to our sin is that it is passed on to our children. So if you sin, and one of the inherent problems in that sin, because sin is sin because it's, it's wrong, and there are problems with it. God didn't just make up something to call it sin. There's, there's something that happens with it. It's inherently wrong. And so you, bring, you, you aren't alone. You have your children, and your children are affected by it, and they're affected by it. And maybe you have a sin of laziness. I'm not picking out anybody in particular here. But maybe you have a sin of laziness and your kids have become lazy because of it. And that goes on for three or four generations. I believe that that's what he's talking about. And here's why. I don't, I'm not just coming up with that. Here's why. Because there's a couple other passages that say this, that you shall not punish the child for the sin of the father. This is Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall their children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sins. In Ezekiel 18, 20, same thought. The soul who shall, whose sin shall die, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father and the father the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon them. So I think it's talking about the consequences of sin. In the New Testament, it talks about your children living with you instead of with a non-believing spouse. There's been a separation and your children living with you being under an umbrella, being holy. So it seems that living with you gives them something that when they're not living with you, they don't have. So we could develop it further, but I, I think that's, that's important for us to understand. I don't, there, there are no generational curses. Don't let somebody, if you're struggling with pornography, if you're struggling with alcoholism, if you're struggling with some other kind of addiction or a behavioral issue, the Bible gives us clearly how to, how to handle those things. It talks to us specifically about that. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Your actual heart desires will change. The weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. The Bible says, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Whatever's pure, whatever's holy, whatever's good, whatever's pleasant, think on these things. And we could go on talking. It's spiritual warfare, I think, that's happened. I don't think the devil's making you do it, but I think he's involved in it. And I think we give a place to the enemy. And there's a lot that we need to battle against. The only reason, one of the reasons, I think you could build a case for generational curses there if later on it said, lay hands on people to get rid of generational curses. If there was some other supportive scripture to try to say that, if we saw it in the, in the epistles, if we saw the apostles doing it, then I would come back and go, okay, then this is something. But just to take a verse like that and say that there are generational curses is a real problem. Now, the law is also, also brings a curse. When you break the law, there are natural consequences. And the natural consequences are this word for curse that you find way back in Genesis and here as well. So Deuteronomy 27, 6 says, cursed is the one who does not confirm 
all the words of the law by observing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. So this is where a couple of the critics that I have gotten recently say that Paul is saying that unless you keep the law, you're under a curse. And so all everybody who's trying to get away from the law and live by faith is actually living under a curse. My, my response is very quick. A hundred people reading Galatians chapter three would not come up with what you're saying. There's no way. That's reading whatever legalism they're involved in. And I don't know what legalistic group they're involved in. They're reading it saying that Paul is saying you're cursed because you're not keeping the law. Because if you could not break the law, if you could keep the law and not break it at any point, you would be blessed. And you would be blessed in an incredible way. If you said, you know what, I want to take my chances. If I can live by the law and be blessed, I want to go ahead and take my chances. Just remember, if you break the law in one point, you break it in all. And if I had more conversations with them, I would ask them, have you ever broken the law then? Because if you did, now you're under a curse. The blessings of the law, <clears throat> when the law was given, after the law was given, they went into the land of Israel. And from Mount Ebal, they, they cried out the curses. And from Mount Gerizim, they cried out the blessings. And when you read the blessings and the curses of the law, the blessings are pretty amazing. God says, if you will do these things, I will do these things. And the blessings that are read there are amazing. And then he says, if you don't do these things, then I will do these things. And the curses are absolutely frightening. And they don't do them. By the way, side note here, archaeological note here, they have found a curse tablet on top of Mount Ebal or in rubble from Mount Ebal, to be specific. Somebody had done a dig there and some other archaeologists were going through the rubble they had left behind and they found a little tablet that was made out of metal that was an inch square. They couldn't pry it apart because they were afraid they were going to hurt it. So they finally got it to a university that was able to use a method to read what was inside of it this is from the, the, the late Bronze Age, which is 12 to 1400 BC. And inside of it is Hebrew and the name Yahweh four times. Now, the reason that is so important, if you know anything about the critics, they say that Hebrew wasn't even around in 12 to 1400 BC and that Moses couldn't have written in Hebrew because nobody knew it and that the Old Testament was written by the Babylonians in captivity, making a claim to the promised land. And there's been all kinds of archaeology that has disproven that. There's the Moabite stone that tells the exact story that the Bible tells about a battle against the Moabite. There's the Sennacherib cylinders that tells the exact same story about Hezekiah and Sennacherib attacking Hezekiah. And from, from within uh, Nineveh, they found cylinders that tell the story from Sennacherib's point of view. And so we know the Old Testament accounts are historical accounts. Nevertheless, every piece of archaeological that, things like this that we discover is going to push these scholars more and more to the truth. Unfortunately, here's how scholarship works. Scholars write a paper on what they believe. And then young scholars come along. And young scholars want to make a name for themselves. So they start looking over the old scholars' work and they go, 
well, this can't be right because they found that cursed stone in Eber. And we also found this plaque in Egypt that talked about Hebrew slaves being in Egypt. And they had Semitic names. They had Jewish names. And so then they'll write a paper and make a name for themselves. But instead of the scholars that are there now taking the discoveries and redirecting what they believe, it takes a new scholar, a young one makes a name for himself. So there's like this lag, this 20 year lag in scholarship, sometimes even longer until this younger scholar finally comes along and he's looking for a way to write his thesis to get his PhD. And so he writes a thesis using that kind of information. The stand, the, the stand, the Dan stone, which names the name of, of the house of David. And it was found in a thousand BC. So almost 3000 years ago, David was alive in a thousand BC. This stone was put up in 900 BC, hundred years after the life of David. And for years, scholars said David never existed. And there was no evidence that the house of David ever existed. And suddenly they find the Dan stone. I have a National Geographic magazine that has that the Israelites are made up on the front cover. It's a cover. It's, a, it's got David with the sling and it talks about them, him, them being made up. And I've got that on. It's on the front cover of National Geographic. And then I have another one that was like 12 years later where they bring up the Dan stone and that Israel was in the land, but they were not a big kingdom. They were a village people. And David was the leader of village people. So they're, they're making steps towards the right direction. But I'm telling you, it is an absolutely incredible find. I, I can't even tell you how important it is and how excited I am that they discovered this Eber stone. And you can look it up yourself because it brings Hebrew back all the way back to the late bronze period. And um, it was declared that, that Genesis couldn't have been written by Moses because they didn't have Hebrew back in those days. And, and this would be the time of Joshua, by the way. It would have been the time of Joshua that they would have found this on this Eber stone that's on there, which would be right when the children of Israel got into the land. It's amazing. All right, what was I talking about? <clears throat> I was talking about the, um, the blessings and cursings of the law. So let me read one of these to you. This is Deuteronomy 28. I think this is the blessings. Um, just to get you an idea of if you keep the law, this is the blessings you would have. Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord God and observe carefully all of his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth and all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obeyed the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall you be, shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of the ground and the increase of your herbs and the increase of your cattle and offspring and your flocks, which is pretty awesome. But on the other end, there was the curses from Mount, from the Mount Eber, which I won't take time to go over them. But if you want to do that as homework, they're as just as good as these are. They're a lot worse. If you do not keep the law, then this will happen to you. You will be driven from the land. You will be taken captive. And you can imagine all the kind of things that were said because they are the things that actually happened to them. In Malachi 4, 6, this is the last verse of the Old Testament. It says, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their father, lest I should come and strike the earth with a curse. 
Curses are so significant that they are brought up by the third chapter in the book of Genesis and the very last word in the Old Testament is the word curse. And then Jesus comes as the Messiah to save us from the curse. Now, Deuteronomy 21, 23, this is just a little bit of background before we get into our text. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, his body shall not remain overnight on a tree. It's saying if you execute someone and you hang them on a tree, it's unclear whether they were hung on the tree by their neck, if they were nailed to a tree like crucifixion, probably not, but their body was attached after death. That's what they did in the days of the Bible being written. They would, they would execute someone, hang their body on a tree as a way to say, don't do this. It says, um, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land of the Lord your God that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is cursed of God. The person that is hung on the tree is cursed of God. Now, this goes beyond the natural circumstances of whatever sin it was that caused this guy to be executed. That's the curse but now there's a curse from God. In other words, God backs up the curse that was the natural curse by saying this guy did something that was bad enough for him to be executed and he will be cursed. Now, let me talk for a moment before we're still going to get to Galatians here pretty soon. But before that, just a couple more verses. How are we freed from the curse? How is it that you and I are freed from curses? I've got two verses. The first one's Romans 8.1. There is now therefore... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why if you find yourself in a service and somebody wants to call you forward to pray over um, family curses in your life, don't do it because you've come to Christ and there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free. Your sins have been forgiven you. You don't need to, to, to pray over those kind of things. The second verse is very familiar. 2 Corinthians 5.17. I quote this often when I'm doing altar calls. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away and behold, everything becomes new. So you and I are free from any curses that we might have, from any sin that we committed that might have natural consequences. And it's not that we might not have the natural consequences that come from it, but we're free spiritually because we're made new creatures in Christ. Let's get to our text now. With that as a background, let's take a look at this. It says, for as many, verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. The reason Paul says as many is because you can't keep the law. The law was never meant to be kept. God's standard is perfection. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And there's only been one perfect person on the earth, and that's Christ. And if you think you're perfect, you can challenge God with that if you want to. I would suggest not to. So as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. So when you say, like these guys that are challenging me, trying to tell me that the people that are living by faith are the ones under the curse. If these guys are trying to live by the law, they're putting themselves under the curse. Because if you break the law at one point, the Bible says, you break it at all points. 
And you can't say that, well, not all sin is the same. All sin will keep you from God, similar in that way. But sins are all different. They have different punishments and they're all different. It goes on to say, for it is written, for it is written cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that were written in the book of the law. So that's on Mount Eber. That cursed tablet was found on there. Uh, that you're cursed if you don't continue in the things of the law to do them. Which means that these legalists who were going in and telling these Galatians that had found Christ through faith, that they had to be like them and keep the law, were already under a curse themselves because they were trying to keep the law. He goes on to say, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law is evident in the sight of God is evident. And let me read that again, just because I'm still thinking of the couple of comments that I got that this is the opposite, that there's people who are living by faith that are under the curse. Verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. And here he's quoting the book of Habakkuk. Paul will use this again in the book of Romans. He will use it again in another place. James uses it. Habakkuk 2.4 says, uh, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. This is the passage that Martin Luther, while he was a Catholic monk, was reading, trying to work out his salvation himself, read this passage and transformed his life. The just shall live by faith. The just shall not live by works. And I want you to notice it says the just shall live by faith. Because the argument from the legalist today is, yes, you're saved by faith through grace, but then you've got to get under the law. Then you've got to go to church on Saturday. Then you've got to keep the, the dietary laws. Then you've got to keep whatever laws they choose, which is always funny to me. They never agree. It's just funny that they've all got their different little things they choose that makes you keep the law that you're right with God when you can't pick and choose. The just are not only saved by faith, that's very clear. But this passage says the just shall live by faith. You don't live by works. What you do, you do because you love God. You do because you love people. God changes you and you start doing things for God now. You're not living by works, you're living by faith. Verse 12, yet the law is not faith. Just in case there's someone arguing, well, that's what I'm saying, the law is faith. No, the law is not faith. But the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in your place. So we can say that we have found forgiveness by his death. But technically, it was the shedding of his blood that caused our sins to be forgiven. Because the Bible says, by the shedding of his blood, we have remission. He died for us. He shed his blood for our forgiveness. And when he was hung upon that tree, he became a curse, which takes away any curse that we have from under the law. Whatever curse you have, have had on your life, because Jesus became a curse for you, 
you are now no longer under any kind of a curse because he took all of our curse by dying on a tree. We could spend time, I won't do it now, but we could spend time looking at trees throughout biblical history. You have Adam and Eve eating of a tree to fall into sin. You have Adam and Eve using the leaves from a tree to try to hide their nakedness insufficiently. You have the tree of life that they're blocked from. There's more trees we could talk about, but Jesus finally, it said that he was nailed to a tree. And the reason it uses the word tree is because it's trying to make a connection to everyone who was hung on a tree is cursed. It's making the connection that Jesus became a curse. He, on the, you know what else happened on the cross? He became sin for you. The Bible says he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He died in your place. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. All of your sin was laid upon him and he became sin for you. And he hung on the cross that the curse might be lifted. So we'll go back to verse 12. Yet the law, um, let's go back to verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. And in this, it's come full circle. Because Abraham was a Gentile. The Jewish people had not been created yet. They were still in Abraham. And so Abraham believes by faith and is saved. And so now we as Gentiles believe by faith and are saved and are not to let anyone put us under any kind of a law. That Abraham, uh, that the blessing of Abraham, now we've been talking about the curse, right? That the blessing of Abraham, what was the blessing of Abraham? That he believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness? That God made him promises about the stars of the, the sky, his descendants, and it became true? That when we believe God, we become righteous? That God makes us promises in his word and those promises come to pass? I can make a strong argument that every one of you here that's in Christ is living under a blessing and not a curse. God has you under a blessing. You might think, well, if this is a blessing, I want more blessing. Well, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm just going to say, God's the one who gets to choose what kind of blessings he's given you. So he says that the blessing of, the Abra of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ, that we might receive the promises of the Spirit through faith. Now, not only has he talked about us being saved by faith, through grace, by faith, not of any works, and then living in faith, and we're going to get that in the practical section. Walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's living by faith. And now you receive the promises by faith. We could go to the opposite side of that. We are not saved by works. We do not live in works. And we do not receive the promises of God by works. Once again, a small little section that Paul wants to talk about the curse of the law and it becomes so evident that this is all you need as an argument to not let the legalist come in and put you under any kind of bondage. If they want to try to make you do any kind of work to be saved, even after you're saved, then 
it's bondage. We, we are transformed. We begin to live like different people. It's not, we're not working to be saved. We're changed. And we begin to do different things because of the transformation that happens inside of us. When we say that the works are evidence, are fruit that you've been saved, it's not that you got saved and then went, I better go take care of some poor people, otherwise I'm not going to prove I'm saved. It's that when you're saved, you have compassion on poor people. It's what happens in the life of a Christian. It's the fruit of what happens. You're not working for anything. It happens in you. And that becomes the evidence that you've made a real commitment to Christ. If you have to do it, if you're like, I better go out and do it to prove I'm saved, then you're missing the point altogether. It's supposed to be evidence that you really have faith, that your life changes, and those are the signs that you've changed. You don't work to keep saved. You don't work to get saved. You don't work to get the promises of God. All of those come by believing Him, trusting in Him, and calling out upon His name. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can take time to consider the curses that we find in the Old Testament. And we thank you that even though my dad may have been a strong disciplinarian and I, for a while with my kids, was a strong disciplinarian, that was broken by you. You came in and changed that. I did not pass that on to my children because of you. And you set us free from the curse. The curse of the law, the curse that would condemn us forever, and Lord, I pray for those that think that they can live by the law. I pray for those that seem to be many today who hang on to this teaching. I pray, Lord, that this, 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 the deceiving spirit behind it would be broken Amen. and that they would see that they need to come to you by faith. Yes. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.